This is the Voice Podcast Network. Welcome to episode three of the Turf and Bird Podcast with co-host Caroline. And Dylan. So today is Monday, April 3rd when we're recording, and I just have to give a brief disclaimer that I am slightly under the weather, so you might be hearing it based on this recording. You might be like, Caroline, why does your voice sound weird? But that's okay. It doesn't matter because we're jumping right in into March Madness with, let's start with um, LSU winning the women's NCAA tournament. What are your thoughts, Dylan? Well, I think it was definitely, and maybe this is a continuation of our conversation from last week, where we really took a deep dive into players versus organizations as a whole. And I think while the story should be LSU winning and the great story it is for their college, the organization to come out on top, it seems like the most important slash the most noteworthy um, stories lines that are coming out of this are Caitlin Clark, who had an unbelievable tournament, as well as the post-game celebration of whether it's the John Cena, you can't see me, whether it's pointing at the ring for the championship that she's going to win. Basically, it seems like the league now is also applying to colleges as well, where we're getting to a flashy level of play. And it's really interesting to see that that's happening at the college level as well. I know we talked about it a lot last week at the professional level, whether it's MLB, NHL. But your thoughts sort of on LSU winning, want to hear your thoughts on that because I know that wasn't the expected winner at the beginning of this whole tournament. I know they're a really solid team, but sort of thoughts on how the whole tournament shook out now that it's over. I mean, they definitely were more of an underdog, but I think the record... Okay, so their head coach, Kim Mulkey, this is her second year um, coaching LSU, but she had won three titles with Baylor before. She's had star players such as Brittany Grinder um, under her, who most notably just got returned or just returned to the U.S. a couple of months ago. Um, And their star player, Angel Reese, who is actually a sophomore, um, she just recently transferred um, from Maryland to LSU this year. And Kim Mulkey, in even her second season, had nine new players um, on her roster for LSU. So this is honestly winning against all odds because you never know what team chemistry is going to be like. You never know if players are going to gel. But one thing that um, Kim Mulkey is known for is giving players a second chance. And there were a lot of new transfers and some of them had played under her before and some of them had like for example been kicked out of their previous college athletic programs for like arrest or like academic probation. But somehow she's able to get the team to gel and play under one system. And She's kind of a flashy coach. If we're talking, like, players versus organizations, there's actually been a lot of talk. I think, honestly, most of the conversation revolving around LSU has been revolving around Kim Mulkey because she wears, like, sequin pantsuits. Like, she brings the energy to the sideline. She's not afraid to call refs out. She's not afraid to call players out. She's not afraid to bring the emotion, especially as, like, a female coach. I think it's interesting how she gets portrayed by the media. Um, versus players so it's interesting too because I think that definitely could be a coach tactic or a coaching tactic where they want to put the spotlight on themselves in the sense that they don't want their players to get distracted from like media controversies or um, outside factors. 
And there's also that, I don't know if it's a controversial video, but it's definitely circulating around where she basically had an entanglement with the referee where she kind of shoved him. Yes. He kind of like shoved her back. So it's definitely an interesting to notice on the college level. And also, you know, since we last recorded, South Carolina got eliminated. That was a big shocker because coming in, I forget what the exact number was, consecutive wins in a row extending all the way back to last season. So I know in the men's tournament, everyone says, oh, it's really impossible to predict what's going to happen. I know entering the women's tournament, everyone said, it's going to be South Carolina, and that's going to be that. But seeing them get defeated in the Final Four against Iowa, you have to give Iowa credit, and maybe that is also Caitlin Clark just carrying them um, throughout the second half and basically the whole tournament. But um, she ends up going home ringless as the celebration saw. Yeah, and um, I do believe she is coming back to Iowa for one more season yeah. next year. So, I mean, she already made such an impressive mark on the NCAA tournament with 100 finishing um, this season, or just this tournament, with 191 points, which is the most um, for any woman or man in the March Madness tournament. So I think that's wild. And like you were mentioning, I think she completely put Iowa on her back. I mean, there's not discrediting the rest of her team um, because there are like major players there that also could um, go and get drafted the WNBA, for example. But definitely interesting. And congratulations to LSU, though. And I will, of course, put the predictor hat on because I know March Madness will come <laughs> around again next year. Again, technically it's April, so 12 months from now, we will be back in the same situation, hopefully, talking about a finals performance. So here we go again. We'll come back to this 12 months from now <laughs> to see if we get this right. But give your prediction for who's going to win the tournament next year. Your face just went blank <laughs> when I said that. But I know. that's what a podcast is all about. We get to make some bold predictions, and if they're wrong... No one ever hears them again, but if they're right, we will be definitely taking this clip and putting it everywhere, saying that we got it right 12 months in advance. Hmm. I'm either going to go UConn or, hmm, okay, UConn, Baylor. This isn't, no, one team. Oh! <laughs> you were just tuning Iowa's horn. Just say Iowa. No, 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 I'm not going Iowa. <laughs> I fully believe in when Paige Reckers comes back. Um... I mean, I have to go because I'm, again, a Texas fan. I just always, I feel like I always have to, I always just have to, you know, go with that. But it's, uh, I don't know. I'm deciding between UConn, Baylor, and Texas. All right. Well, I'll be more bold, and I'll say UConn for sure. Paige Beckers is back. Yeah. Going to be fully healthy for the first time in probably two seasons. Yeah. Seems like she's going to have a chip on her shoulder. I know she's I know. already mentioned she's coming back. Yeah. She's probably got WNBA on her mind eventually in the future, but for now her entire focus is UConn. And I think we remember, I believe she was all freshman or like number one freshman in the country that year when she actually did play. So now imagine a couple years later, yes, a couple injuries later, but she's now more developed and is going to be a superstar on that team. Lock it up. 12 <laughs> months from now, UConn's the world <laughs> champion. Um, easy, said and done. UConn <laughs> could also be a champion in a different bracket a couple so days true. from now if you want to transition to that. Yes, but briefly, I just want to know, Dylan, if you just wanted me to predict Iowa winning so that you could combat it and say UConn was going to win. I was trying to push you away <laughs> from UConn so it. I could take UConn. And then I took UConn before <laughs> you could even. I knew where that was going. I saw that. I was like, you can't put me in that. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I'm going to go with either of those three. Baylor, um, <laughs> UT, or UConn. So. I should have taken Houston. <laughs> I know, you really should have. Um, but great transitioning because 
we have on the men's side the finals coming up so soon. We just finished the final four, and now we're going to the top two. We have San Diego State versus UConn, and we already know Dylan thinks UConn is going to win. I, okay, I was really rooting for FAU, but then, of course, San Diego State with that buzzer beater beat them. Um, I thought that would have been a great, great story to hear about FAU making it to the finals. Um, Here's the thing. In my heart, I want San Diego State to win. Realistically, UConn has been so, so dominant this entire tournament. Like, their defense and offense, I just think, could prove to be too much. I think San Diego State, some people are predicting it to be a blowout game. I don't think so. I think San Diego State will really keep UConn on their toes. So I think in that sense, maybe San Diego State, like they do have the ability to stay in the fight. They do have some clutch moments, aka their Final Four (laughs) game. So I think in that sense, it could make it interesting. Maybe they would pressure UConn into losing their poise, losing their control. Um, So yeah, my heart wants San Diego State to win. My head is leading UConn. Alrighty, well, if you do go and listen back to the last episode of Turf and Burn, you would have heard our (laughs) predictions for who was going to make the finals. So I'm just gonna say, since I'm not legally allowed to say who I want to win games, if you read between the tea leaves of what I said last week, with SDS as well as Huskies. You could have (laughs) predicted who I thought was gonna win. I will continue the trend of saying that that furry animal that uh, (laughs) is a university of a word that rhymes with... You just predicted the women's side to win 12 months later. Well, that doesn't count as a prediction. (laughs) Okay. But okay, I think UConn's gonna win, as you mentioned, dominant. They beat Miami, which was a really good team, 72 to 59. So as a result, I think no one's stopping UConn because they're just on that roll right now. And sometimes when you get in a tournament like this, you just can't stop a team when they're on a train roll like that. And it seems like that's UConn this year. Here's the thing. That's what people thought about Iowa from the women's side. So, you know, my heart is going to win out and I'm going to pick San Diego State so that we can have a little podcast rivalry. And Let's you know the great wins. thing about this is that <laughs> when everyone's listening to this by Wednesday, you already know the answer know. who actually won know, the game. So one of us is going to look stupid and one of us is going to look really good at the end of this. It's, it's going to be me, guys. I'm going to come out the winner. <laughs> Clearly we can see based on my, my term, or the term of bird um, bracket predictions that I was great at predicting games. So. Okay, but now moving on to um, the NHL. Let's check in. Our favorite check-in are the NHL playoffs and who has already clinched playoff spots and again the playoff race that is getting tighter and tighter as the 82 game regular season is about to come to a close. So it seems like a lot of the teams at least for the three that were going to advance via their divisions are pretty much clinched. We've known for a while Carolina, Jersey Rangers locked their spots up as well as Boston, Toronto and Tampa. And then in the Western, you've got Minnesota, Colorado, Dallas, as well as Vegas, Los Angeles, and Edmonton. Wildcard races are a little bit more interesting as we're going down the line. In the West, Seattle and Winnipeg are currently, by the time we're recording this, in their slots. Seattle also has the games played advantage. They've only played 75 games, so if you were a betting man, you'd assume they're making the playoffs over Calgary, which is still hanging on by a thin thread right now. They're at 87 points, recording this on April 3rd. And then the East is still an absolute mess because the Islanders and Penguins, as of right now, have spots. 
Florida is right there, and you're still holding out hope that Buffalo is going to somehow make it into the championship. So, your thoughts? So, I'll start my analysis with the Western Conference, because normally we start with the East. <laughs> i got to give some love um, to the West. And surprisingly, the Central Division, none of those teams, like the Wild, Avalanche, or Stars, none of them have clinched a playoff spot yet. Obviously, they are going to make it, but that just shows the disparity. Like, for example, the top spot in the Central is the Wild with 97 points. The Bruins, I mean, obviously, it's the Bruins, too, so they're, like, you know, record-winning, record-breaking team this year. They're at 125. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, even the Hurricanes are at 107. The Devils are at 104. And the Wild are, you know, relaxing at 97. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, but it's been interesting because we really thought, again, that the Stars were going to run away with this. Um, and people haven't spoken about the Avalanche enough. Their last set of games, have, they've won 8 out of 10. And um, normally I wouldn't say this about a player of his caliber, but Nathan McKinnon has been severely underrated this entire season because okay if you look at his stats I believe he is on he has 97 points currently and you might be like okay that's not that great um yeah he's at 97 however if you look at his games played he was out for injury for a really long time so he's almost at I think two points per game which is actually completely insane it's yeah really really good um, and the Avs have lost so many players to injury. Sorry, he's played 64 games. So, um, yeah, that's pretty good because he's lost out on, like, 10-plus games. Ten, yeah. So, I'm like, sneaky, sneaky stat right there. Um, but also, yeah, I want to talk about Calgary and how they're still, despite the odds just going against them this season, and players seem to be turning against their coach, Daryl Sutter. Um, people see, players do not seem to be happy to be playing there this year. I mean, even the GM sold at the trade deadline. I mean, they also kind of just stayed put, but also sold mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, they're still hanging in there. But I, again, Kraken do have those games at hand, so I do want the Kraken to make it because it's their second season. How cool would that be for their fans? And the building. I think that would be electric playoff atmosphere to see the Kraken because every every player always talks about how insane Vegas is and obviously it's Vegas but like even the stadium and like their presentation I think that would be really cool and also the Predators <laughs> they were a major seller at the deadline and they're still kind of hanging in there like it's looking really not likely that they're gonna make it it's a mathematical shot like right right <laughs> A very outside chance, but it's actually wild if you, they have had so many injuries right now. Like, I was just talking about the abs injury. Like, Yossi, their top, um, D is injured, Soros was injured. It's been, like, players that you have genuinely never heard of. Like, you could be the biggest Preds fan and still barely even have heard of these players because they've... Uh, come out of the minors and also like overseas players that have just all of a sudden stepped up and have like 14 points in 10 games and so they have still been hanging in there but it's more just like no one apparently wants those two wild card spots i think especially with calgary like i'm looking at all their stats and everything to do with that their splits trying to figure out how is this team good slash how is this team actually still 
relevant in the playoff discussion, and it's kind of hard to see. Because if you look at their points differential, they're at plus seven. Their home lo- their home record, they're 19 and 15. Their away record, they're 17, 11, and 11. So they're not great at anything, which is kind of a rude statement to say about a team that's literally two points away from a playoff spot in the last two weeks of the season. But it's really, I think it's more effective. There's no team right now that stands out. I guess you could maybe argue for the Kraken, but there's no team out of the wild card right now of the four teams that we just mentioned that you could say they could go on a sneaky run in the playoffs. I think in the East you could, and maybe this is the homer bias in me, you could see a world where the Islanders advance a round or two. You could see where the Penguins could advance a round or two. I think at least me personally, you'd probably be shocked if you saw Seattle or Winnipeg get by a team like Vegas or Los Angeles in the playoffs. I don't know if you disagree or agree with that. Yeah, well, something about Calgary that I think is notable is that they have lost 11 games in either overtime or the shootout, which is the most out of every single team in the NHL. And also, I think they've, I think this is, uh, it's a, they've only won 40 goals by, four, sorry, they've only won 40 games by one goal, or, and then, I believe they've they've lost like thirty some twenty to thirty something games by one goal. So it's like really just again I don't know the exact number, but it, it's definitely in the twenties. Um, and I apparently this is twenties or thirties. Apparently this is like the most ever in NHL history that a team has lost. Well, I was looking for something positive that makes them stand out. I don't know if the most losses in one round games count as that. Well, here's the thing. I know. But here's the thing. I know you were saying making them stand out, but I think in that sense it's honestly really just bad luck. Mm -hmm. Like, Like, I think they have the skills to put it together. Obviously, some players seem to be struggling there in the new, um, in a new environment. Like, Jonathan Huberto has not been performing up to standard. Um, like even Elias Lindholm, who is a star setter, like hasn't been playing as well. The entire team just seems to be sagging a little bit. Jacob Markstrom needs to be playing better. Again, speaking to that one, like one goal, they just needed one more goal saved. Yeah, so definitely, there's just a lot of players that need to step up. But it, even just a little bit of luck could get them in and also if you look at who they're playing the, they do not have formidable opponents coming in they are going to play the Jets and the Predators um, who are both vying for those playoff spots more so the Jets who also have been having issues lately Rick Bonus has called out the Jets for their play but Blackhawks I don't see them trying and they've just been you know a dumpster fire the entire season Canucks they could make it tricky on you, but probably not. And Sharks, again, <laughs> bottom like four team in the NHL. But one thing that is interesting is that's the final game of the season for the Sharks. And Eric Carlson, currently I believe is at 96 points. 95 points, sorry. <laughs> and he would be the first defenseman to reach 100 points in, in like a long, long time. And I think he could do it. He just needs five more points, and he could have a really good game that last game to pull out the uh, 100, to go triple digits. So you never know. I'm still going to say Calgary doesn't make the playoffs, but that was my deep dive analysis. 
Sorry, Calgary, you've just run into a lot of trouble this year, I guess. Well, it also seems like towards the end of, and I guess this is just sports in general, when you reach the end of the season, it's really those head-to-head matchups that are going to be the determining factor because if the Calgary Flames win a bunch of their games but then lose to the Jets, I think those are two head-to-head points that you have to win if you're going to make the playoffs. So I know Seattle, I think, tell me if you disagree, I think they're probably going to make it yeah. pretty easily. They have the games played advantage. They're also in the spot right now to begin with. Yeah. So it's really down to Winnipeg and Cal- uh, Calgary for that last spot. So I think whoever wins that matchup, and I believe it's next Wednesday. No, it's this Wednesday when you're listening to this episode. Um, exactly. So I think that game is going to determine who gets the last spot in the West. Meanwhile, in the East, I don't know, because <laughs> I would have told you the Islanders a week ago had the spot on lock, and now with the game played disadvantage, having played one more game than everyone else, they're just two points above Florida, who's played one last game. Um, they're one point ahead of Pittsburgh, having played one last game, and Buffalo still hanging on, as we mentioned. So your confidence level in my Islanders, as well as who you think could grab one of the other spots, or are two teams jumping the Islanders? I still think the Islanders are going to make the playoffs. Again, it's head versus heart. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but realistically, I think it is Islanders and Penguins. I don't think Panthers have it. Um, they don't have it together this season. Again, they also sold at the deadline um, quite a, a little bit. They have no cap room or cap space or assets. And they just, I, even if they make it to the playoffs, I truly don't see them doing any damage whatsoever. I just don't think they're a tough team to play against. I think Matthew Kachuk individually is having a great season. I think everyone else on that team is really, really struggling. Like, everyone else, um, including Barkov. He has not been playing, like, as well as he should. There's just been a lot, a lot of... I think, yeah, just... There's recently been drama with... um, Yeah, I would say there's, I'm going to say the Panthers are not going to make it. However, I do hold hope for the Buffalo Sabres. They have played 75 games, which is less, the least, or like the lowest number in the entire league. That means that they have three games at hand on the Islanders. That also means that they are very much capable of winning those games. Will it be a tough road for them? Yes. Is Tage Thompson currently... Slightly injured, yes. But Tuesday, which is tomorrow, but April 4th, which means this game would have already happened yet, already. <laughs> which, Sabres versus the Panthers. That is a must-watch game because that's like four points right there rather yeah. than two because it's divisional. I'm like, if Sabres win those two points and then Panthers lose and they already have those games in hand, that's great. And then Red Wings, I think they're capable of winning that. Hurricanes, that's going to be hard. <laughs> and, yeah, so, okay, the matchups aren't looking good. Then they have they play Rangers, Devils, Seds, and Blue Jackets. I think they could – I know everyone counts the Senators and the Blue Jackets out, but they're a tough out. I honestly see Sabres beating the Rangers and the Devils. You heard it here first. So <laughs> I I believe in them. Penguins, I just can never count Crosby out, so it's just hard. I will say, though, with the Islanders, because it's the only team you didn't mention in your preview just now, they are 22-13 <laughs> and 13 at home versus an exact even 17-17 oh. and 17 on the road. Three of their final four games 
are at home. Granted, one of them is against the Lightning, so that's probably a loss anyways. But if you think about it, four games left, and they're currently sitting at, if I have the math right, hold up, 87 wins. Get three victories, I think 93 should be enough to get into the playoffs. Hold on, you just said 87 wins. They're not 87 or 82, wins. 87 points. If we're at 87 wins, my God. But, um, <laughs> of course. But I think 87 points, add six more, 93 should be enough. Chalking up the Tampa Bay game as a loss. You've got the Flyers, should be a win. The Canadians should be a win. And then the Capitals is going to be tough because that's on the road. Maybe that's a Turpin Burn outing. If that's a if that's a playoffs game on the line, like last game of the season for the Islanders, just saying. But um, definitely an interesting route for the Islanders, the Penguins, the Panthers, and the Sabres to see who's going to claim the last two spots and get to face the Bruins in the first round. Yay. Yay. Um, and one question I want to ask you, Dylan, is who do you think is beating the Bruins? Or do you just think they're winning at all? Do you think they're going to be the 2023 Stanley Cup champions? I do, with the one caveat being if Minnesota makes makes it all the way to the Stanley Cup. I don't know why. Like, there's no reasoning behind Minnesota. But I just think every year there's a fluky team that makes it all the way to the Stanley Cup. You're calling Minnesota the fluky team? I am. I'm saying Minnesota's making it all the way to the Stanley Cup. They're okay. facing the Bruins. So you're going to say the Stanley Cup final is going to be Bruins versus Minnesota. Minnesota, the Wild yeah. in how many games? Six. Okay. With Boston winning. No. You just I, said the shoot, only team right. that could win. The only team that could win. I'm not saying that they will, but I'm saying they could. So you're saying Boston in six versus Minnesota. Someone in six, Boston versus Minnesota. I think that's a good enough prediction. Someone in six. Someone in six. You got to pick. Boston. Okay. Screw it. I'm going to go, this is going to be hard. Like, I don't want to be the person that picks Lightning versus Avs again, so I'm not going to. Um, And obviously we could do this again when Mm. we know everyone who's in. But I'm going to go off the board. Islanders in four. <laughs> no, I'm gonna say who who my Stanley Cup final is. Yeah, <laughs> just Islanders four. I'm actually gonna go. I think you're gonna be shocked by uh-huh. this. Lightning versus Oilers. Okay. I could see that. Like, yeah. they're both making the playoffs for sure. Yeah, I don't. I yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I really don't know if the Lightning have it in them to win again, but I just cannot count them out. I think in the East, if there's one team that could knock off Boston, I think that's probably your safest bet. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, I think the the Hurricanes have done it like they did it last year, Mm -hmm. the year before. I think they could. So I just think in terms of Lightning, I know Lightning are playing the Maple Leafs round one. I'm taking the lightning there. We could go more into Stanley Cup analysis. But then I'm like, what, what happens? So I'm going to go, oh, it hurts to bet against the Hurricanes because I love them. But I've, I've, I'm actually going to pick the Oilers to win the Stanley Cup. Interesting. And then, yeah. of course, when the playoffs start a week from now and we predict completely different teams to win, you can pretend <laughs> that this never happened. But I think if you're all good on the NHL, which is starting to wrap up, we have another sport that is starting to pick up. And that is Major League Baseball, which teams started this past Thursday. 
by the time you're listening to this, every team will have lost a game. Every team will have won a game. My New York Mets, I live and ride and die with them with every single game. The sky is falling when we lose. We're celebrating as if we won the World Series every time we win, although celebrating not too hard because we know that our closer got injured celebrating a victory earlier this <laughs> month. But basically, Major League Baseball has two big stories happening right now in it, and that's that the pitch clock has been in effect for now a week, and people are having really positive reactions to it because game times have gone down massively. I know the question was, it was working in the preseason. Was it going to transfer over to the regular season? There was a Mets game that finished in two hours and eight minutes. That's an insanely short, that's less than most movies now at this point, which I feel like is a good step in the right direction for baseball, as well as the MLB owners and the Major League Baseball Players Association agreed that the new CBA will be changed a little bit to now incorporate minor league baseball players who in the past made at the lower levels $4,000 a season. That's now been increased to $19,000. Upper level minor leaguers will make now around $35,000, as well as they're now gonna be part of the Major League Baseball Players Association Union. So when there is, of course, the labor strike in four years from now, <laughs> that will now include minor leaguers in the situation as well. So it won't be millionaires versus billionaires. It's now millionaires versus billionaires versus Thousandaires. I don't know what you call. I don't know what people making that regular money. regular common folk will common now be incorporated folk. in. But exactly. Major League Baseball issues off the field. I know we don't want to overreact too much to what's happening on the field since it's only been six games. But anything you want to add in on these two sort of tangential to baseball stories that are happening? Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about the CBA because I think that's really interesting because it. All the like leagues that we cover in terms of NHL, NFL, I think, and also um, a little bit NBA. <laughs> I think the MLB has not the worst farm system, but like definitely the weakest in terms of player representation, in terms mm -hmm. of player power, in terms of um, what players earn. And I thought the NHL players made like not very much. And for example, if they play the ECHL or the AHL, um, or like if you play the G League or um, in the NBA or even overseas, but the MLB, I didn't realize. It's bad. Okay, here's the breakdown. So, if you're a rookie, you go from making 4800 to 19800 If you're in single A, you go from making 11000 to 26200 High A is 11000 now to 27300 Double A is 13800 to 30250 Triple A is seventeen thousand five hundred to thirty five thousand eight hundred, and half of these, actually, the majority of these players never even make it to the MLB to begin with, mm -hmm. which I think is standard across all the all the leagues. But the fact that they are not making minimum wage, <laughs> like for their time, well, maybe they are, I guess, because. I don't it's weird because they're tech like they claim baseball is not claim, a year like, round training, job, like, yeah. but when you think about it, like even that when you're not so in season, low, you are yeah. getting oh my, the fact that a rookie was paid four thousand eight hundred dollars <laughs> is it, and that I'm assuming that doesn't account for signing bonuses no. or things like that. But and people a lot of times like for example in single A they don't have like deals with no. um for example a lot of equipment mm -hmm. um brands or so they're gonna have to buy a lot of their own stuff or have to shell out more money for that they don't have the same amenities as obviously mlb players have and the fact that they're getting paid so low like that is mind-boggling to me 
And I don't know why it took so long, actually, for the CBA to be passed. So the weird thing about Major League Baseball is that unlike other sports, for example, something like hockey or the NFL, where you really hear about the draft prospects when, like, on draft night they're drafted, and you know, okay, this guy's helping out the team in maximum a year or two from now. And, like, some guys, especially in the NFL, you draft a quarterback in the first round, he might be starting opening day that season for you. With baseball, the average time in the minor leagues is four and a half years. So you draft the guy right now. Like, for example, the Orioles last year drafted a guy named Jackson Holiday as the number one overall pick. They will not see him actually play in Baltimore till around 2026, the earliest. So it's really a system in Major League Baseball where, yes, you get signed, and some of the guys do make massive signing bonuses. I think the average in baseball is maybe around... 50k in total but there are the first round picks get six seven million dollars signing bonuses but i think those are more the exceptions than the reality but the problem is you're stuck in the minor leagues making nothing for years it's not like okay it's a one-year stopgap but then i'm gonna make the majors in major league baseball the one credit you can give them they have the highest total or they have the highest floor salary once you make the majors so like if you make the majors you're set for life the problem is, as you mentioned, I think the track record of going from the minors to the majors is not a very easy pipeline to do. Yeah. And getting paid, I think initially it was $4,000 a year to do so, is uh, not great, <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> but there's also a cool video. I don't know if you guys know Rachel Luba, who's a major league player agent. Definitely check out her video. She did a breakdown on what this means for her clients, for her players, um, and what the whole thing, because she represents a lot of minor league baseball players. So from the agent perspective what this new cba means definitely check out her video after you check out our podcast yeah definitely but i just think it's interesting that it took them so long yeah this to happen i'm like clearly this i'm like if the owners are unanimously Mm -hmm. signing off on this clearly it's been in the works i'm like no one had any um had any I guess, uh, <laughs> opposing opinion, so I'm not mm-hmm. really sure why it took them this long, but, and they're still not getting paid very no. much. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> I, like, I don't know who's living off of $26,000 a year mm-hmm. if you're playing single A trying to make it to the MLB. I guess their argument, and it's not a great one, but their argument is that players only play from April through September, so then it's go get another job in the off season. but the problem is, as an athlete, whether you've played in high school or even, like, fifth grade, you have to practice when you're not playing games. Like, it's not like those players are like, all right, season's over in September, not picking up a baseball bat until March. Like, you need to still grind out practices every single day during that offseason. So it is, as much as they want to claim baseball is not a, quote-unquote, full-time job, it really is, even when you think about it. So um, making $4,000 a year in a full-time job is... I don't know if that's even legal. <laughs> well, completely sweet the other way on the pendulum in terms of money-making wise. Let's move on to Live Golf, <laughs> where players, we saw big name players like Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, leave the PGA Tour and side with Saudi Arabia, Saudi, Saudi nationally backed Live Golf. Um, and I think they have what is it, like $100 billion? It's a lot. <laughs> it's so much money like that um, the Saudi Arabian government put into Live Golf. And 
how much money they are currently making. So I'm like, that's the complete, complete opposite of, yeah, apparently um, he was paid, like just Dustin Johnson was paid 150 million US dollars to play in the Live Series. Um, and I think got a lot of that money mm-hmm. up front. So very interesting because we have the Masters, the biggest golf tournament um, coming up in this. It'll actually be start be starting right like the day <laughs> after this this podcast episode comes out. But very interesting because the live uh, players have not been able to play at any of the PGA tours. So we haven't actually seen these players light up against a lot of the um, top, top golfers. Obviously, I mentioned just Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson. We have Cameron Smith, who just won the British Open in 2022. He's probably Liv's best chance of winning the Masters. But it's interesting because the Liv series setup is 54 holes versus 72 at Masters and PGA. And Masters actually this year has lengthened some of their courses so that it's been, it'll be even even harder to stick out the 72 holes in terms of endurance, I think. And then there's also no cut after 36 holes for Liv, so I think that means there's less pressure to perform immediately. You can always give yourself some time to settle in. If you get, if you're not, you know, on par or birdieing holes immediately, it's not the end of the world. But then with Masters, you are cutting after 36. So I'm like, I'm interested to see how this head-to-head matchup will go. I think when you think about it, for especially guys like Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson who played previously, for them it probably won't be as difficult a transition because I know they've only been playing in live for maybe a year, two max at this point. So I don't think it's the type of thing where you're going to forget how to play the master style of golf just yet. But it definitely is probably a different mentality, especially for a guy like Phil who's kind of old at this point. So going from 54 holes to 72 could make a big difference. He could be doing completely fine, and then you're just gassed out, and that's the end of it for you. I don't know if people think Phil's actually going to win regardless, <laughs> but I think it's the type of thing where if you're just a regular Masters PGA fan, it's good to see the guys again. It's almost like an old-timer's day type of feel where you're like, oh, I haven't watched him play in such a long time. Great to see him type of thing. Um by no means are either of us golf experts, but if you want to make a prediction on who you think is going to win the Masters this week, go for it. Well, I have the Masters odds pulled up, and if you want to take Phil Mickelson to win, it's plus 20,000. So that should give you a good idea of his chances of winning. But, okay, I, I'm going to be completely honest. I do, I'm not keeping up with... <laughs> golf but I think I'm gonna pick I'm just gonna pick Colin Morikawa <laughs> interesting I will go with a name that don't ask I, me for analysis I that, never though. like picking a favorite because that's too easy yeah to me do. neither so I'm just gonna go down the list like 10 to 15 names and the first name that I see that's in that area is Brooks Kepka. pretty sure he used to be a good player I don't know if he's not anymore but that's a name I recognize. I will go with him, endorsing him to win the Masters. Of course, not betting on the Masters because I'm not allowed to do so. But go with Brooks Kapka. Very solid bet to win this weekend. And that concludes our golf expertise, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but one subject that I know for sure you are an expert in is, of course, the Grand Prix. So take it away with what's been happening in that realm. In the Grand Prix in Formula One. <laughs> Whatever. Close enough. <laughs> Well, 
recently, as of this weekend, we had the Australia Grand Prix, which I guess it is. It Grand is. Prix Look at races. that. <laughs> yes, people get what you're talking about. And I just, I don't know if, um, Dylan, you're familiarizing yourself with the teams or the race. Like I know they go around in work. a circle. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> or any of the names. But once again, Max Verstappen for the win. But, you know, I don't really care about Max Verstappen winning. We've already heard that the Red Bull car is the fastest, like, by far away. And teams and drivers are amazed at its speed. They think Red Bull drivers have actually been holding back because they don't want to show off the entirety of its speed yet. Um, and they, But apparently there's just over a six-second gap um, from Red Bull and the other cars. But I want to talk about is, number one, Fernando Alonso winning his third straight third place. It's a great last name. I know. It really is. But this is someone that everyone, again, not everyone thought was washed. But he's he's definitely an older driver. He's 41. He is two-time world champion. But he just got to Ashton Martin this year. Um, he... He honestly is, I think he's a very consistent driver, but he never got the tools, um, like, after he kind of won his World Series with Alpine recently um, for two years, and now um, things are kind of coming together for Aston Martin, which is very interesting because things have really been going wrong for them in the past couple of years. But that was interesting. And also, just how many cars collided during the entire race, which... So many, it's never a good thing, for example, when two drivers of the same team take each other out. But that is what happened with Alpine, with Esteban Alcon and Pierre Gasly um, taking themselves both out of the race with, I think it was two laps to go on the third restart, or the second second restart, um, with two laps to go, and then they were out of points, and yeah, their cars were completely damaged. (laughs) I do have a little analysis okay, that I'm going to go with Let's because um, I'm going to go tangential to Formula One and announcing when's the next race. The next race is at Azerbaijan and it's April 30th. April. All right. So we've got so he's got some time to recover, but I think Fernando Alonso is going to win the next tournament. And you want to know why? Tournament. Next <laughs> race. Come on. I'm I'm learning the lingo, but want to know why? Why? Because he just broke up with his girlfriend, so he's now going to spend the next month. Right, you're talking about Fernando Alonso. Yes, he just broke up with apparently his girlfriend Andrea Schlager after the F1 Australian. Wait, I didn't even know this. So now I know more than you. I know. Um, But basically, wait, that's actually sorry. I'm literally (laughs) just getting. They were. They have been together for such a long time. Exactly. So look at my analysis here. Is that he's going to spend the next month like stewing at home, angry, motivated on entirely just F1. And at the end of this month, he's going to wow. come out firing and a lockdown victory for Fernando Alonso. Not to mention that by the time that race happens, Pete Alonso of the Mets will have 10 <laughs> home runs. So continuing the trend with that last name, Fernando Alonso, a newly single F1 driver, will win wow. the next Grand Prix at the end of the month. Look at that. I came with hard-hitting analysis for you. I today. will say, though, Charles Leclerc did that at the end of... This past season, when he broke up with, like, his girlfriend of three years. And? 
And it's been going really poorly for him. This is his worst start in his entire career. He just, he got out on lap one. The first lap, like his car spun onto the gravel, was done uh, for this race. I'm like, even last year, when he was performing well once in races, Ferrari's strategy was horrifying. But this year, it's just been really, really bad for him. And this was after he broke up with his girlfriend. So we all thought, like, villain era, Charles Leclerc was coming. And unfortunately, the season has not gone well for him. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pretend I don't know that exists, and I'm just gonna go single Fernando Alonso's winning his next race, not tournament. Yeah. So I'm learning the lingo. But, but something, exactly. But something that I think ties into our previous podcast episode as we're wrapping up our Formula One discussion is people being unhappy with officiating or officials. Mm-hmm. And specifically now with Formula One, it was Carlos Sainz, who also drives for Ferrari, who got issued a five-second penalty by the FIA um, for allegedly kind of spinning Fernando Alonso um, and forcing the second or third restart. And he would have gotten fourth. He would have finished fourth, and then he got all the way pushed down to 12th, basically the last driver who would have finished um, because eight drivers did not finish (laughs) in the Australian Grand Prix. But it pushed Ferrari out of points completely for... um, for the weekend, and lots of people found the the FIA um, decision to be very harsh and unfair for sides. So I think it's interesting to see that it seems like in some areas there's been an overcorrecting from like officials, especially in terms of recently like this stop it featured three car restarts, which is unheard of, and then like penalties getting put on drivers versus we see with other sports where it's just free-for-all well officiating is always going to be there i know we mentioned yeah. it last game i don't know if you got the chance to look at i sent you that mlb's doing those mlb scorecards for umpires so yes. that's one way of keeping them on their toes it's a lot more difficult for sports like f1 like the nfl where there isn't really because i know baseball it's literally did you get the call right or wrong versus more sports like F1 and NFL where it's like judgment calls, which are a little bit more difficult to make because that's more subjective and can be interpreted different by different referees. But definitely interesting to note that even in sports you might not expect, like F1 where you're just thinking, how can a ref get involved? They're, they clearly can and always be a part of the game. But, yeah. And with that, we can close out our third episode of the Turf and Bird podcast. Alrighty, so that wraps things up. We will be back again next Monday, April 10th, when you're hearing it, April 12th. Well, so technically, we might be on Easter break, so... We will figure that out. It will, but we'll probably have an episode next week coming out. We'll have something soon. But also, stay tuned for updated cover art, if you guys haven't seen that yet. Um, but hopefully, that'll be out, so that'll be very exciting. Awesome. So until the next time, for Dylan and Caroline, the turf is burned.